Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this series of podcasts, we'll be shining a full-beam spotlight on the operatic spectacle that is UK trade policy. And today, our focus is on the UK's current transition from EU member state to autonomous trading entity. Britain left the EU on the 31st of January, but for the time being, hardly anything has changed in terms of our trade with Europe. We're in a transition period, which will run until the end of the year. And during that period, the UK needs to negotiate a whole new trading relationship with the EU. But is that period going to be long enough to get everything sorted out? Doubts were being expressed on this subject even before the minor inconvenience of a global pandemic descended upon us. There is an option to extend the transition period. But what difference would that actually make? Would it not be better to focus minds and make the best of the time that we have? And given that the UK government is adamant that it will not extend the transition period, what can we expect from a deal that took 11 months flat to put together? Now, this is a highly charged area where nerdy trade detail and impassioned identity politics quite often clash with each other. So to debate the subject, we needed to find people of great wisdom and insight. And I'm pleased to say we've come up trumps. I'm joined today by Dr. Peter Holmes, reader in economics at the University of Sussex and a fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory, and by Sam Lowe, Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for European Reform. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Peter, let's go back to first principles. Why did the UK and the EU agree to a transition period and what exactly does it involve? I think it's worth remembering that the May government used to talk about an implementation period, which suggested that everything about the post-Brexit relationship would be fixed when we left and then we just needed to implement something. Uh, Fact is that the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration don't spell out exactly how we're going to trade with the EU when we are fully out and we need a transition period to negotiate whether we have a free trade agreement or no free trade agreement, customs union, whether we have any kind of harmonisation of rules and regulations. And there still is the issue of whether if we have a new agreement about our final status, we might still want an implementation period at the end of the transition period, even if the transition period isn't extended. So we need to decide exactly what our long-term relationship is going to be. And then it's arguable that it should not come into place overnight. Sam, in the withdrawal agreement that the EU and UK have agreed, what provisions were written into that agreement on the subject of possible extensions of the transition period that we've currently got? Well, so it is possible for the UK and EU to agree for the transition period, which is set to end at the end of this year, to be extended for up to two years more. But the UK and EU need to decide on that before July the 1st. And it's probably fair to say that for the moment, the UK has been pretty adamant that 
it won't do that, notwithstanding the fact that the negotiations really only began in earnest a couple of months ago. So the UK's line has been consistent on this, and the UK has said that it does not want the transition period to be extended. From a political perspective, the view is that a deal can only be done if there's a firm deadline, and actually kicking the can with a further transition period wouldn't actually help anything. It would just mean that the sort of crunch point just happens later rather than sooner. Of course, what with there being a global pandemic at the moment, some would argue that actually more time is going to be needed to negotiate the future relationship because countries have been distracted. The EU has been distracted, the UK has been distracted, and rightfully so, because we've been dealing with the economic fallout, the economic and human fallout of COVID-19. But as it stands, the UK's line is, despite COVID-19, or even taking into account COVID-19, we're not going to ask for extension. But one point I would make here is that we do have a prime minister in the UK who is prone to changing his mind. And if he were to change his mind and, for example, stand up on television on a Sunday evening and say, actually, I know I said we weren't going to extend the transition period and all this Brexit stuff would be done by the end of the year, but because of a global pandemic, we're going to need a bit more time. I hope you all understand. I really don't think very many people would have a problem with that. So whilst it is unlikely that the UK will request for the transition period to be extended, I still wouldn't rule out the possibility. Peter, if that were to happen, what would actually be involved with extending the transition period? It's not just a simple, straightforward rollover of the status quo, is it? Can I just, before getting to that, which I think actually Sam is probably better placed to answer than I am, I would just like to point out there's a second thing that's changed, that the position which the British government is taking in its negotiations is somewhat harder than the position which the May government adopted. And I would argue, and I think people may disagree on this, that the UK government has actually rather changed its attitude. It wants much less alignment than before. So we've got two things that have happened since December. They're taking a slightly different line and we've got COVID. So this adds to the reasons, the further reason why an extension might be desirable. As to what has to be done, there has to be an agreement with the European Union, and there would have to be a new legislation passed. But as Sam points out, Boris Johnson has changed his mind on a lot of things. And with the speed, for example, which the COVID regulation has been rushed through, it's not at all impossible that um, we could get new legislation through. There'd have to be some agreement about what the financial implications were, but um, I think the obstacles to extending are more political than formal and legal. Sam, would I be right in thinking that it would probably be the budgetary implications of an extension which would be the most difficult bit for the UK to negotiate? I'm not sure how difficult it really needs to be. We know how much it costs for a month of transition at the moment, So just essentially, whatever we're paying now per month, do that again. I understand that it might be politically contentious in the UK context in that people will say, well, this is money that we could be spending on on nurses or on PPE or the like. But it's one of those sort of fatuous arguments that falls apart when you consider that actually extracting yourself from the single market and customs union, as we intend to do at the end of the year, at the end of the transition period, comes with a big economic cost that far outweighs any contributions to the EU budget and actually from a 
you know, a COVID-19 response point of view, putting up trade barriers with your biggest and most important trading partner probably causes more problems than sending them a few more quid. So as things stand, the UK and the EU need to negotiate a new free trade agreement by the end of this year. So what's in your view, gentlemen, how are things going? What are they attempting to cover and what are the principal sticking points that they've run up against so far? I think it's important to understand that actually on many areas, the UK and the EU have greater alignment when it comes to the final destination uh, identity or what does this trade agreement look like. They actually agree on this more than people perhaps think in that the UK has accepted a balance of access and obligations in that we've accepted that we are not going to get very much access and we're arguing that in return there should be no obligations. So when it comes to things like market access, what should the tariff schedule be, the EU and the UK agree, duty and quota free. That's 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 quite easy. The issues that are, have arisen are, are well known and are largely political, or at least they require a change in a political approach to overcome. So they are disagreements on access to fishing waters. They are to do with disagreements over the so-called level playing field issues. This is where the EU has asked that the UK commits not to roll back existing levels of protection for environment and labour uh, rules and also continue to follow EU state aid rules now and into the future. There's also disagreements over the role of the Court of Justice and disagreements over how this future relationship is packaged. Is it multiple separate distinct agreements, one of them being, say, trade, another being justice and home affairs, or is it all pulled together into some sort of association agreement-like structure? And the UK doesn't want to budge on any of this, and the EU doesn't want to budge on any of this. And unless that changes, there will not be an agreement by the end of the year. My feeling is that there is a way through on many of these issues, but it involves the UK having to budge quite a lot and the EU having to budge a little bit as well. I guess this negotiation is very unusual in that it's really only just got underway, but it's also hasn't really got much time before it comes to an end. The whole timescale is very compacted. So I'm wondering how that affects the sort of the political economy of the negotiations. Does it concentrate the mind wonderfully or does it increase the risk of a rushed and poor quality agreement emerging at the end of this? Both is the answer. I think, it, yes, of course it focuses the mind. If you've got a very, very hard deadline at the end of the year, then you start trying to think about how do we avoid that and how do we ensure it's not quite as damaging as it could be. So yes, it focuses the mind. But then if you've only got a few months to negotiate something, then the chances of it being poor quality are quite high. But the point I would make here, though, is that what the UK is asking for, even at its most ambitious, isn't very good. It still represents quite a big step down from the status quo of where the UK is now and fully integrated within the EU single market customs union regulatory regime and the like. So if we are leaping to a free trade agreement, which is what we want, which at best is duty and quota free, does a little bit on removing non-tariff barriers at the edges, but not much, very little on services. Even if we get that, it's not going to be good. And day one is going to be quite different from what we experience today. And this points to another risk, the risk being that on the UK side, we say, well, actually, 
the day one impact of moving to a free trade agreement isn't actually that difference from leaving the transition without one. So why are we going to cave to these EU demands when actually the benefits aren't so great? To what extent has COVID-19 changed the picture? I mean, how practically difficult does it make it when negotiators are having to negotiate remotely by sort of video conference and so on? Does that really make a difference or are people just using that as an excuse for saying we can't possibly conclude these negotiations by the end of the year? I think that we don't really know how negotiations by Zoom will go. I mean, things are changing so much that I think that uh, it really does make a difference that the amount of unofficial discussion that can happen, the sort of informal soundings that can be done just aren't possible over the um, on Zoom. And they may be possible if people are making private phone calls, but it's not quite the same thing as being able to actually just speak to someone in the corridor. But I would just like to stress another aspect of the implications of COVID. If we really were to leave the transition period with no deal at the end of the year, the situation is much different from what it would have been without the COVID thing, because we just don't know what border barriers the EU will be putting up. The EU would have the absolute right to put all kinds of health and safety rules in place, which we just haven't thought through. And of course, the it's not just the government that has to think about these things. Firms do. And to force firms to face a bigger change than the one that they might have been anticipating even a year ago, and a change which is more uncertain because we don't know what the, um, the health and safety implications at the border are, at a time when all their attention is on how they're going to survive, I think that makes the prospect of the no-deal exit more difficult. On the question of whether we could, whether negotiating over Zoom causes problems, of course it does. It's much more difficult to negotiate remotely, especially when you're getting into detailed and contentious issues. But one point I would make with these negotiations is that they're not going to be made unstuck because of something discussed by, between David Frost and Michel Barnier. The only reason they're going to become unstuck is if at the political level, at the Boris Johnson level or at the council level in the EU, a change is made to the mandate, to the approach that allows them to move forward. So if Boris Johnson suddenly one day tells David Frost, you need to find something that works on level playing field, we can cope with enforcement, but we just we just need to make it look like we've won something then yeah, you can have some progress. But until that moment happens, and whilst political attention is focused elsewhere on COVID-19, the negotiators are just going to keep batting up against each other on these issues and make no progress whatsoever. What would you say is the effective deadline for concluding a negotiation, given the, the need for implementation and getting it through the relevant parliaments and so on? I mean, it's October... It's just in terms, I mean, that's, I'm not saying that that's not pushing it fine, but it feels that you could get everything ratified so long as it comes in in October. I mean, in terms of getting it through the member state parliaments, it's not necessarily clear to me that the trade aspects of this deal would need to be put through the member state parliaments. The big question for me still is whether there will be a subsequent implementation period, because there is this problem that the day one issue impact of moving to an FTA looks quite similar on the ground to no deal. So if you have an FTA, do you want to move to it gradually rather than overnight? And if so, how? 
I suppose this is where the completely unique nature of these negotiations comes into play, because we are very used to having phase-in periods in free trade agreements, but we've never yet had a phase-out agreement where we move from the the high level of integration that we currently have as a member of the EU to a position which is beyond that. So do we just simply sort of reverse the logic in that sense and agree sort of transition periods or phasing out periods? I mean, it's not completely unprecedented to do that. You know, you don't jump to full liberalisation in an FTA all in one go. So why would you jump to full deliberalisation all in one go? I mean, I can create ways of doing this in my head i'm not i'm just not sure that they'd be particularly palatable to either the eu or the uk but so to give one example uh you extend single market for goods and customs union membership for a year via the treaty for the future relationship i think that that's arguably exclusive eu competence wouldn't require member states sign off and could be done and within that year you start to phase in the different controls but with the fallback and the understanding that non-compliance doesn't bring any issues with it. So you start to introduce different measures, but if a business gets it wrong, who cares? They're still actually covered by the broader framework. This is just me essentially riffing off the top of my head. But even even notwithstanding that, just creating more time for businesses to prepare, even if there still is a cliff edge at the end of it, but prepare knowing what the final relationship is going to look like, bearing in mind they will only know this in, say, October, could still be useful in and of itself, even if they still have to cope with the day one issue further down the line. Could I respond to that? Because I think that is really vital. That The discussion of the difference between a transition period and an implementation period hasn't really been explored enough. I mean, the as I said earlier, the May government only talked about an implementation period. Now the Johnson government only talks about a transition period. And what Sam describes seems to be extremely sensible. I think the the question that one might put to that is, could you also have a situation in which a lot of the things still had to be, the details had to be fleshed out during the so-called implementation period? You agree the broad principles, but then you agree that certain things will be spelled out later. And the exact way in which the Northern Ireland system is going to work is going to be very complicated. Can we leave some of the details of that to be sorted out during the uh, implementation period? I mean, I can see the hardliners on the, the Conservative Party going completely crazy if we did have an implementation period that looked like an extension of the transition period. But in a way, it does seem to address the problems. It allows the government to claim that it's really left the transition period but it allows the change to be smooth enough for firms to get their head around what they've got to do and to tidy up the loose ends that need to be fixed. Sam, it sounds like we're arguing that a lot of this is actually presentational and that if we can wrap it up in the appropriate amount of flannel, then it can be sold as you know, not contravening our sacred red lines depending on you know whether you call something an extension or a, or a phase in or an implementation period it seems to be all about to some extent it seems to be about the labels that you attach to these things well i think a lot of brexit in its entirety has been about the political economy and how it's presented and i suppose the point i'm making is that there are solutions there are routes through the question is whether it is palatable to the british government 
and whether it is palatable to the British government depends on whether it can be sold as a win to the British people. And we have a very recent example of this. If we think back to the autumn last year, where Boris Johnson accepted a customs and regulatory border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, but continues to claim that he didn't, and portrays it as being a great win over the EU, in which he got Michel Barnier to reopen the withdrawal agreement and a great success, a large portion of the British press still write it up that way, despite you know there being a text we can read and we can see what happened. And he agreed to something the former Prime Minister said no Prime Minister ever could. So... In a way, this, I don't know, maybe this is too strong, but this propensity for duplicity gives me some hope in that perhaps there is a way through, perhaps there is a solution that can be found because we do have a prime minister that can sell capitulation as a win. It's a very fine political art, it seems to me. But of course, there is still the risk that there might be no deal at all. And that if there is no extension, we move to what the government likes to describe as an Australia-style relationship, i.e. with no trade agreement in place at all. How would that affect the UK economy and and what short-term mitigations might be possible? So the day one impact is fairly well explored. So on day one, British businesses will need to be submitting in dealing with import and export procedures. If you, for example, export products of animal origin to the EU, they'll have to enter via a veterinary border inspection post subject to physical inspections and document checks. If you're a services provider, depending on what it is you do or sell, you may need to now operate out of a subsidiary based within the EU 27. You might not be able to sell cross-border from the EU anymore. We're talking about all of the issues that came up when we were talking about no deal last time, of trucks queuing up at Calais and Dover, of there being lots of confusion. And I sometimes like to point out there'll be, to my mind, lots of accidental illegality with companies uh, breaking the law without meaning to. And this is actually, what I've described here, could apply to leaving without a deal at the end of the year or moving to a free trade agreement if you were to do so overnight, because the changes will be so drastic either way that it will leave quite a few businesses um, scrabbling to comply and deal with new procedures that they hadn't really been paying attention to for the last few months because they've been too busy dealing with the fallout out of COVID-19. In terms of the longer run impact, what we're talking about is Britain being poorer than it would have been otherwise, but richer than now, most probably. So, and that's a relative shock. So there is always this question that I have, which is, if the main impact of Brexit is for, for the public will be felt on day one, as in if the TV crews are outside the ports showing all of these lorries queuing up and everyone goes, okay, that's what Brexit did, then surely you want to avoid that. You want to smooth it out because the long-run economic impact of Brexit is relative. And if we're richer than we are now, people might not notice. Would any short-term mitigation measures be possible or yes. would, that, would that depend entirely or principally on the remaining level of goodwill between London and Brussels at the end of what would undoubtedly have been a rather bruising process? So, so yes. So if you look at the EU's no-deal planning notices, so these were the measures it was going to bring in, into force unilaterally in the event of the EU and UK failing to conclude the withdrawal agreement, I would assume that many of those will still apply where the EU sees it as being in its interest to do so. So to give an example, uh, the no-deal planning notices allowed for 
derivatives to continue to be cleared in London for a duration of time because the EU hadn't actually built up its own capacity to perform that function within the EU27. I would presume that that would also apply in the event of no deal this time round because there is a potential systemic risk to the EU's financial system and it's something that they don't want to provoke. When it comes to unilateral mitigation at the borders, we saw with no deal last time, the French introduced quite a forward-thinking e-border with um, pre-clearance, no automatic number plate recognition, like, and all of that could certainly still kick into force. But of course, with what we're talking about in mitigations, it's still quite a big change from what we have today and will still cause quite a few businesses problems, especially when you take into account they haven't been thinking about this stuff at all this year. Just a couple of follow-up points. I think one area where there's going to be limited freedom of manoeuvre for the the British is in cash assistance to British firms, because clearly the EU is very keen on its the application of its state aid rules. And if British firms are being given subsidies to cope with the extra costs of, of Brexit, then the EU is going to be ready to slap in countervailing duties or anti-dumping duties. I'd just like to add one other little point about uh, what happens on day one, because I think for the first, for the, for one of the things that will happen for, for most products, if we have uh, no deal, and probably if we have a simple FTA, is that firms are going to have to have inspections of their products carried out by an EU-approved inspector. And this might, in the worst case, mean that things will have to be checked as they cross the border. But for a lot of cases, you're going to have to fly somebody in from a standards testing agency in the EU, which is qualified under EU, it's accredited under the EU rules, to confirm compliance with EU rules. And that's going to be something which could be a bit of a problem for quite a lot of firms. We need to draw this conversation to a close. But before we do, I'd just like to ask each of you what has become the Trade Bites tradition of an unfair question to end. What do you, how do you rate the chances of a deal being done this year? Do you think it is more likely than not that we will emerge with a fairly comprehensive free trade deal, whatever form that takes? How likely do you think an actual no deal situation would be towards by the end of December? Sam, what's your view? (laughs) I think I'm on the record pre-COVID-19 as being one of the most optimistic people working in trade policy in the UK. And I think that there probably will be a free trade agreement this year. COVID-19 concluded this year. COVID-19 has knocked my faith slightly, but I I may as well stick with it and say, yes, I think a free trade agreement will most probably be concluded this year. And you can all laugh at me on January 1st next year if that turns out not to be the case. They do say that an optimist is wrong as often as a pessimist, but he has more fun. Peter, what's your view? I think I'd go along with that. I think that the costs of having no deal are so enormous that uh, even the present government, which is sort of driven by ideology, may be forced to rethink its approach. And I think that uh, there's a decent chance that we may go along the implementation agreement approach that Sam outlined earlier. So I, I think with slightly less optimism, but I'd still go ahead with saying on balance, some kind of deal, which will 
make Britain worse off than it otherwise would have been. But nevertheless, something will go through along those lines. Okay, well, that's a semi-positive on which to finish. Gentlemen, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much to both of you. And there we have to wrap up our podcast for today. Many thanks to both of my guests, to Sam Lowe and to Peter Holmes. And of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. Join us again next time for our next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.